Well, this morning, as we uh, start back into our studies in 1 Samuel, uh, we get into this in this chapter 19, and we have a, a real turning point in the narrative that will last from this point on through the end of 1 Samuel. It will take us up through uh, chapter 31, and that turning point is reflected in the fact that from this point on, uh, Saul is intent on killing David. Uh, we've had some tension already along those lines back in chapter 18, but now things change. And basically from, from this chapter on, David is going to be on the run from Saul until Saul eventually dies in, in the very last chapter of 1 Samuel. Um, but we know what's going on here with all of that because, because Saul himself has been one who's disregarded the word of the Lord. Because he's disregarded the word of the Lord, the Lord has removed him uh, or has disregarded him as king in Israel. So Saul is no longer the sanctioned anointed king from God in Israel. Instead, now David has been anointed in his place. Uh, but we know things haven't exactly gone smoothly because instead of David being on the throne of Israel, Saul still remains on the throne. In fact, he remains on the throne in a very stubborn way in that he is still failing to yield to God's word. As God said, you're removed as king. Saul will not yield to that. And instead, even seeing David's victories, those have stirred up jealousy in Saul and he wants David gone. He's seeking to secure the kingdom for himself. He doesn't want to give up the royal position that he has. And so this tension is developed to the point now where Saul uh, is going to be very intent on, on killing David. Uh, it's obvious that David is the deliverer the people need, uh, but Saul, he's very determined not to give up his position. And, uh, and so as we come to this chapter and we think about this with all that in mind, uh, we can set the context for this chapter and, and really all of what's to come in the remainder of 1 Samuel along these lines. We'll set the context in this way. Um, acknowledging simplicity amid complexity is very much a part of what it means to be human. And one way that simplicity amid complexity is acknowledged in life is the way in which two distinct options can be lined out before us. It's something that the poets acknowledge very freely. So, for example, while, while we know that life is full of all kinds of different choices and different kinds of decisions, Robert Frost can still write a poem and say, two roads diverged in the yellow wood, and I took the one less traveled by. And, and we can identify immediately with that, even though in the complexities of life at times it can seem like 16 roads are diverging in the yellow wood, and we have all kinds of different choices before us, even still there's a sense in which the simplicity of the poetry makes sense. Two roads are before us, I need to choose one or the other. Uh, or, or there's the poem by Ella Wilcox, which I've quoted to you before, I think, but, it, but she says, one ship sails east and one sails west by the selfsame wind that blow. It's not the gale, but the set of the sail that will tell which way they'll go. So, so while in life we, we know the, the winds of influence and change can, can blow in all kinds of different directions around us, and Wilcox's poetic metaphor for life, the wind blows in just one direction, and we go in one of two directions. We're either going to go east or we're going to go west based on how we set our sail. So, so for all the complexities of life, part of our being human is also to acknowledge something of the simplicity that's there. There are, there are two roads to choose from, or there's two directions on the sea. Um, and when it comes to, to reading our Bibles, we find the same kind of framework holds true, this simplicity amid complexity. Uh, we're very familiar with the fact that the Scriptures are full of enormity, of, of an enormity of divine complexities. They're all throughout the Bible. In fact, even in our studies in 1 Samuel, 
And we've scratched the surface of some of those complexities. Um, in the scriptures, there are, there are complex things revealed about what it means to know God and to understand His way and to, and to live as the humans He's made. There are, there are great complexities that can very much confound uh, the extents of our capacities. Um, the scriptures are full of those things. But at the same time, there is also a level of simplicity in the Bible. Uh, Jesus speaks of it uh, quite plainly. He, he's not speaking uh, necessarily like, like the poets we've quoted already, but it's very similar in that there's not two roads in the yellow wood and there's not two ways on the windy sea, but Jesus speaks about two gates, doesn't he? There's one gate that leads to life. There's another gate which leads to a way of destruction. Or, or we have Proverbs which speak of attending to, to one of two voices. Either there's, there's Lady Wisdom or Madam Folly who we're going to pay attention to. So, so the poets write about these kinds of things, the two roads or two ways on the sea, and then we get into the Bible and we read about the two gates or the two voices calling. Uh, part of our engaging in the complexity of being human is also acknowledging that there's also this, this level of simplicity that exists. There's this way or there's that way. And as we come to the next chapters that take us through the end of 1 Samuel, that there are certainly complexities that will need to be mined here as we study. There are deep considerations about the way in which God works and the ways in which He reveals Himself. But under that, or maybe actually better to say, above all of those complexities, there is a very definitive simplicity reflected in the remainder of 1 Samuel. And that simplicity comes as we recognize that in these upcoming chapters, we're regularly being faced with one of two ways. That there is the way of yielding to God's chosen king, which is going to bring life. And there is the way of opposing, even very uh, in such a hostile way, opposing God's chosen king. And that is going to lead to death. So in these narrative accounts, not least of all beginning in chapter 9 to 19 today, in these narrative accounts, for all the complexity that can be in them, there is really the simplicity of these two ways laid out before us. Are we, are we with God's king or are we against God's king? And as we consider those two ways, we can be helped in our understanding of what it means to know God, what it means to know the salvation and relief that's found in God's purposes of grace. Because ultimately, as we consider God's anointed King David and the various ways in which people are either with him and for him or, or against him, as we think about God's anointed King David, we know we're brought along in a consideration of the ultimate king uh, to whom David is pointing. We're helped in a consideration of King Jesus. We know that uh, very explicitly. We'll hear that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where, where the final climactic king Jesus is going to come in David's family line. So we know <coughs> excuse me, that David is, is pointing us forward in his royalty to the one who's ultimately going to come. And then as we get into the New Testament, as we've, as we've refreshed ourselves in time and time again, uh, the New Testament writers bring up the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the, of the messianic king promise that the people of God need. And so as we consider the realities of David and what it means to either be for him or against him, we're being instructed in these narratival ways about what it ultimately can look like to be for or against God's ultimate king. And, and so we have the question set before us, are we with God's king or are we against him? And, and that thematic question, as we'll see, is very much present in our passage today. It's not uh, two roads diverging in a yellow wood. It's not two, winds on, or two ways on the, on the windy sea. It's not, it's not the narrow gate or the wide gate. It's not Madam 
uh, wisdom or dame folly or any of these things. It's simply uh, there, are, there are two ways of responding to God's king. We're with him or we're against him. And so that's what we're going to focus on as we, as we study this morning. Uh, you can have an eye on the text. That'll help to follow along as it, as it always does. Uh, not least of all because we always want to be checking and making sure that what's uh, said about the Bible is really in the Bible. So that's just an important uh, practice to cultivate as we know. Um, and so we're going to begin in chapter 19, and, and again, just starting in verse 1, though it'll kind of uh, bleed down throughout the rest of the, of the chapter, but in verse 1, we note right out, of the, right, right out of the beginning of the passage that there is increasing hostility toward David on the part of Saul. Uh, so we note that, first of all, this increasing hostility is present. And you see that in the first part of verse 1 where we read uh, that David ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David forward and amped up. So if, if we just think about that for a minute, that, that's a very straightforward and amped up development in the storyline so far as, as we've been studying it. Because if you remember back to chapter 18, Saul, who is completely overwhelmed with jealousy and envy because of David's battle success and the, the people are celebrating David and all of those things, Saul's overwhelmed with jealousy and, and he has this tenacious desire to keep hold of the kingship for himself. So he wants David dead. We know that from chapter 18. And, and, and while Saul wants David dead already in that former chapter, we also see how he has been fairly covert about that so far. Now, he did have a couple of those spear-throwing episodes, uh, which, which you know, they didn't work out very well for him. But those aside, Saul had decided to be fairly sneaky about his attempts on David's life. So one thing he did was he set him down in this military battalion, putting him out at war with the Philistines, thinking that, you know, the Philistines are going to take care of David for me. I'll be able to, to have a, a fairly clear conscience, at least as far as the public who loves David so much is concerned. The Philistines will take care of that in battle. I'll put David out there. He'll get killed. Of course, the opposite happens, and David is extraordinarily effective in battle and defeats the Philistines time and time again. So then Saul develops this, this murder-by-marriage program where he thinks, I'm going to give, I'm going to give my daughter Michael to, to David as a, as a wife, uh, but the, the dowry, the bride price, is going to be very dangerous to obtain. And so he sends David on this grotesque and, 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 and very violent mission, thinking that certainly when he goes and does this, the Philistines are going to take him out in that process, and then I'll be relieved of David. And again, I'll, I'll be able to claim impunity and, and all will be well. Of course, what does David do? Well, David goes and he's extremely successful with that. He marries Saul's daughter, Michael, and things continue to turn out badly as Saul attempts to, to take David's life in a more covert sort of manner. So now, in chapter 19, we see he's, he's finally decided to, to ratchet things up. So Saul moves now from his kind of back, back door murder programs. Uh, now he moves to being very clear and overt about what he wants done. So he speaks to everybody in his court. He speaks to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants, the text says, and just tells them openly, kill David. Like this, this is the program now, uh, whatever projects you may be working on, just set those things to the side. This is the main thing we're going to be focusing on now as far as the, as the, as the kingdom program goes. We need to kill David. So, so he's put uh, this, this open notice, David needs to die, no secrecy anymore, no trying to set David up in ways that leave Saul looking innocent. Uh, the cards are all on the table, he just wants David dead. And as we think about this, we're reminded, um, as we've been before from Saul's position, but now even in a much more pronounced way, we're reminded that when it comes to considering God's chosen king, there, there ultimately is no neutrality. 
uh, Saul isn't just indifferent toward David. We see that Saul's actually in this position of moving. He's moving further and further down the road of hostility now as he blatantly orders uh, David's death. Just like Jonathan isn't indifferent toward David, but Jonathan, like we'll see next, Jonathan actually moves towards taking great risk and even more risk as time goes on to spare David. So there's this movement in one of two directions. So so we just take note of that from this text, and especially as we think about how this prepares us to consider Jesus himself and what it means to follow him as God's climactic king, to to be against God's king is not a a float about in a position of of neutrality kind of thing, but it's actually to be in a posture that, that over time, more often than not, slides further and further into this position of significant hostility. In Saul's case, from, from some covert murder plan to now very overt uh, murder plans uh, in, in order to kill David. We see that to be true just in, in Saul's own experience, but we also know this to be true as we think about our experience. And of course, at any time, the glorious thing is the the grace of God can break in and it's amazing and He does break in in so many amazing ways that that draws people who are otherwise against Him to Himself. The Lord breaks in like that in extraordinary ways of grace. But we can also know people who reject Jesus and, and, and rarely, if they're pressed, is that rejection a kind of neutral disinterest. You recognize this in conversations that you have with them. If they're going the opposite direction of Christ, those conversations, instead of being neutral, they ultimately can grow in hostility and animosity, and there's a a kind of progressive hard-heartedness that's present. There's a negative progression. And so that's that's a place where we actually notice a difference between the the Wilcox poem I read to you earlier and and the life of actually following Jesus. In Ellie Wilcox's poem, she talks about how one ship sails east and one sails west by the selfsame wind that blow. It's not the gales, but the set of the sail that will tell which way they go. And then she says, to every man there opens a highway and a low, and in between, in the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. But that's where things get different when it comes to God's king. We discover there are no misty flats in between. Ultimately, there is going to be a with him, or there is going to be an against him. And we see that play out more often than not uh, as we consider uh, what it means to, to follow Jesus. Because when the truths of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and, and yield to him as master, when those things are brought up, we tend to move in one of two directions. There's not neutrality. In Saul's case, there's this increased hostility uh, toward, toward the Lord's anointed king. Which actually brings us then to, to consider what we're told next about Saul's children uh, in, in the remainder of, of, of the verses up through verse 17. Because we notice that while Saul has this increasing hostility toward David, in Saul's own children, so Jonathan, Saul's adult son who's friends with David, and Michael, Saul's adult daughter who's married now to David, and his two children there's actually a demonstration of costly loyalty to David. It's the very opposite of what's going on with Saul. So for Jonathan, we start to see this right away. And the rest of verse 1, where we're told that Jonathan had great affection for David, um, and, and Saul wants to kill David, but Jonathan's committed to David. He, he, he tells David what's going on. After Saul puts out the order to kill him, uh, Jonathan warns him. He takes David's side over his dad's side, uh, which, which we've seen Jonathan do already. He actually did this, first of all, back in chapter 18 where he makes that covenant of friendship with David. And then you remember how he actually gives David his royal robe and his military gear. 
indicating that even though, uh, humanly speaking, in the line of the kings, Jonathan should be the next one to occupy the throne. After all, his dad is king. But he's actually indicating that he's acknowledging God has made David as king. He takes off his own royal garments. He was committed to David and God's purposes for making David king. And, and, and when his father orders David dead, uh, Jonathan here, he, he, he goes out and warns David. And not only that, but he actually goes to Saul and, and tries to talk Saul down from his murder plans. And, and so we read in verse 4 how Jonathan speaks well of David to his father. And, and he tells Saul not to sin against David because David had done nothing wrong. And then he recounts how David has actually only done what is advantageous for Saul in terms of military victories, which is just very brave on the part of Jonathan because he knows this is exactly what's making his dad so angry with David. But what he does is he recounts how David struck down Goliath in verse 5. David brought great victory for Israel. And David even says, you saw that and rejoice." Don't, don't forget, you're really happy that because of David, we're not the Philistines' slaves right now. You're, you're really glad about that. And, and then for a moment in response, it seems like Saul starts thinking rationally about uh, again, and, and he recognizes the truth of what Jonathan is saying. And he actually makes an oath before the Lord and says that he's not going to kill David now in verse, in verse 6. And then we're told that as a result, David has actually returned to his position of serving Saul just like he did before. And you remember how David served Saul. He served Saul as a military leader, and he served Saul as a musician in Saul's courts. When, when Saul had the evil spirit that would come and, and, uh, and cause him trouble, David would play music, and it would drive the evil spirit away. It would bring some relief to Saul. David served Saul in those two main ways, military leader and, and, um, and playing music for Saul's relief. And that's exactly what we see David getting right back to work doing in verses 8 and 9 which is just amazing on the part of David, and that he doesn't, he doesn't fight it given the express animosity Saul has shown toward him. He doesn't fight that at all. He just gets right back to work. So in verse 8, war breaks out, and David did what David always did. He went out, he fought against the Philistines, and guess what happened? He, he had a, a great victory over the Philistines. David led the armies to victory. And then in verse 9, there he is still doing his job. He's, he's, he's now... Uh, playing an instrument for Saul as Saul is afflicted by that evil spirit again, which we talked about at length earlier, so we won't get into that now. But, but Saul is afflicted by an evil spirit, and David's there playing music for Saul, bringing relief. So David's back to the job he was doing before. He's been invited back. He comes back. He's fighting against Israel's enemies and winning. Obviously, that makes Saul look good, too. He's, he's, he's keeping them out of slavery to the Philistines, and He's bringing relief to Saul in a very personal way. He's serving humbly, David is, effectively, all of these things. But even though Saul has sworn an oath to not kill David, and even though Saul is personally benefiting from David's kindness to him, once again we read that he tries to pin David to a wall with a spear. This is Saul's thing. And we do have to ask ourselves, as David escapes once again, we do have to ask ourselves, has Saul just not put any practice time in since the last times he was attempting this? Or has he not decided to choose another weapon? Because he just can't seem to pull this off. So David, or he, throw, he throws a spear. David tries to pin him to the wall. He, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, make it. Instead, uh, David escapes. So he's on the run. And we just see Saul's own heart percolating with that jealousy that's been in there the whole time. Goes back to chapter 18 when the ladies were singing the song. Saul's slain his thousands. David is ten thousands. That jealousy is right there. He wants David gone. He just can't stand it. Um, but he misses However, David, uh, David is out of there. Um, verse 11, he, he escapes, David does, and he goes home. 
which is kind of interesting. It's interesting to think about what David understood in terms of Saul's desire. He might have seen it uh, just as a manifestation of Saul's torment with the evil spirit at first. Maybe it'll pass and I can go back again. There's something about the forbearance of David here just in general that keeps being reflected. Something we can uh, take time maybe for homework. You can think about the forbearance and the patience of Christ that's reflected even though we offend him. He returns to give grace. He returns to give grace. David keeps doing that, right? But David's, David's at his house, and his house turns out not to be a safe place to be because David sends men to, to watch David's home in order to, to kill him in the morning. And now it's not Jonathan who exercises costly loyalty to help David, but now it's, it's Saul's daughter, uh, Michael, who's, who's David's wife. She helps rescue him now. Now, she's the one exercising this costly loyalty. She recognizes that David's going to be dead by morning if he stays home. She says as much to him. And then she lowers him out from the window, and he, and he escapes. Verse 13, he takes, she takes this uh, household idol and, and sets up the bed with some goat hair to make it look like David is sleeping sick in bed. Now, immediately as we read this, we think, why, why does David and Mike, why do they have an idol in their home? What, what is going on with that? Um, and, and we'll actually learn later that, that there is something about Michael that revolves around a, a worship issue. You remember in 2 Samuel 6 when David comes celebrating with the Ark of the Covenant, he comes back and he's dancing and singing, and ultimately Michael's going to be upset about the worship that David is offering on that occasion. So there's a, there's a worship thing that's going on here where the narrator doesn't unpack that all the way right now. That's not the focus of the passage, but we do have a clue that something is, is slightly amiss there. However, the main point is clear initially here. Mike, Michael is setting things up in, in such a way to give David time to escape. Uh, the, the men come in and they kill uh, to, to kill David, just like they planned, but, but she manages to convince them that he's sick in bed, so this, this would be a bad time to murder him. You know, if you could come back when he's feeling better, he'd really appreciate that. And, and for some reason, they, they don't kill him there. They go back and tell Saul. And why they don't attempt to go in and find him, we don't know. Maybe, maybe they're afraid of, of going against the, the royal daughter. That, that could very well be a pressure. Maybe they just don't want to get sick. Who knows what's going on? But Saul's frustrated by the men. And he tells him to go back, get David, bring him bed and all back to me so I can kill him myself. Which is, we know Saul, we're probably thinking he's excited for this opportunity because let's be honest, healthy David is no match for Saul. But sick David, maybe I can finally hit him with the spear, get two or three attempts in and actually, and actually make it stick. Uh, so Saul, he's probably convinced he'll have the upper hand now. But we know the men return to get David and he's, he's long gone. The men have been deceived. Uh, and, and Michael says, that, that she, she deceived them. She has to kind of defend herself. She deceived them because he was af- she was afraid that David would kill her if, if, he didn't, if she didn't help him, which, which we know isn't true. But, but Michael is obviously and rightly concerned to save her own life in this situation too because she knows her dad has murder in his heart. And, and we'll see even, even in the next chapter he's willing to try to kill his son Jonathan. So, so she knows she's in peril from her own father. Um, ultimately, that, that actually brings us back to the point that we, that we have here, a main point we can draw out, in that while Saul is engaging in increasing hostility toward, toward the king of God's choosing, uh, Saul's very own children, both of them here, are acting in ways that reflect the exact opposite posture of heart and that they're exercising costly loyalty to King David. And, and in this, we're helped to think about a posture towards God. God's king ourselves, because as Jesus comes, as, as the ultimate king from God arrives on the scene, we know that there is no neutrality in that sense. That's why Jesus speaks of a broad road and a narrow road, a broad gate and a narrow gate. 
And, and rather than moving away from Jesus in hostility, through the Scriptures, we're actually called to engage in this costly kind of loyalty like we have reflected here. And this loyalty toward David in 1 Samuel, it will be costly. For, for Michael here, she legitimately is fearing for her life. And Jonathan, too, he's aligning himself with the man that his king father wants dead. Again, in the next chapter, because of his relationship with David, Saul is going to attempt to kill his own son, Jonathan. Um, and, and so in this situation, we see a demonstration of, of something that Jesus will make very clear, and that in following Jesus, not only will it be costly, that's true, but, but do you remember a main way Jesus describes the cost in, in Matthew chapter 10? So Jesus is illustrating the cost of following him, and the illustration he uses is that of saying directly that in following me, a man will be set against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law, and then Jesus says a man's enemies will be members of his own household, Jesus says. So, so, so it's costly to remain faithful to God's king, and a main sphere of that cost, and I, and I know that some of you felt this acutely in your own lives, a main sphere of that cost is in, in what it means to follow and obey Jesus is that there can be tension and, and, and costliness represented in the sphere of one's own family. It's actually very interesting to note just how this is how this is highlighted when we put chapter 19 against uh, chapter 20. Because in the beginning of chapter 19, when Jonathan says, I'm going to go stand by my father's side and talk to him about you, David. Remember how he says that in the beginning. That language there is, is technical language, very often used of a trusted royal advisor to the king. So in other words, Jonathan is so close to the king. He has the king's ear in a unique way. He's a uniquely presumably trusted ally of Saul. But because of his loyalty to David, listen to where things end up in chapter 20, just part of this. Saul, angry about Jonathan's loyalty to David, Saul says to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, and Saul threw his spear at Jonathan to kill him. Yeah, he doesn't kill him because he's a bad spear thrower, but he tries to. So, so there are complexities to what it means to follow God's choice king. There are complexities to what it means to yield ultimately to Jesus, God's climactic king. But there's also a level of simplicity present. We have to ask ourselves, will I be hostile or will I be loyal, even at great cost? And we know that kind of cost. That cost can be painful relationally. That cost can be dangerous for us for a variety of reasons. That cost can bring sorrow. That cost can be pain. But even as we pan out from this, we see that that cost remains the only logical, life-giving option. Because what has Jonathan already tried to make really clear to Saul from the very beginning? What do we have with David? Let's just bring to mind, what do we have with David? With Saul, we've got, we, we've got defeat constantly with Saul. Saul's not even going out in the battlefield. With Saul, we've got defeat all the time. What do we have with David? With David, we have constant and, and unending, as it would seem, unending deliverance from those who would otherwise oppress us, bring us down all the way to death. With David, even though the loyalty aspect is going to be costly, ultimately, what we're getting with God's king, Jonathan has been saying, is life. We're not slaves of the Philistines. Instead, we've been relieved. Remember how the fears of the people are relieved as David defeats Goliath, and the people are rejoicing because of the freedom they can embrace based on God's anointed king's work. And so even as we think about the cost element that's reflected here, we see 
the extraordinary rationality that's reflected in the choice of following God's King, no matter the cost. Because ultimately, what do we want to have happen in our lives? Do we want to be aligned with somebody who may be very angry, but may at the same time bring defeat and disaster and death? Do we want to be aligned with Saul? Or do we want to be aligned with the King who saves our life, rescues us from bondage, delivers us to a place of freedom and joy and celebration? That's ultimately the contrast that's being set up here. The cost is deep, but just like Jesus will say, there's a way of life and there's a way of death. And the way of life, it's a narrow way. And the way is costly that leads to life. But at the end of it, life is where you are. Instead of this place of destruction where these people are going to be left if they're going, if they're going in a way contrary to the king. So we have this set up. There's hostility as, as one option here. And then at the same time, there is great cost in terms of loyalty. But that loyal cost ends in life itself. With David, we live. With David, we have deliverance. And so, and so we recognize that as this goes on. There's a, there's a motivation there. And then as time is permitting, let's just let's see if we can get through, let's see if we can get through the rest, because the motivation uh, to follow Christ ultimately isn't just in the fact that with him is life. But there's also motivation here in that the rest of this narrative makes it clear that to choose to be against God's king is one that very much leads to shame and defeat. Now, now, now the rest of this narrative is, is strange. I'm not going to read it all again for us. Uh, you, can, you can go over it again at home. But verse 18 and on, we have Samuel going to, or we have David fleeing after he gets, gets out of his own home. He flees to Samuel. And he tells them everything that's going on. And it's just noteworthy that in the context of what would obviously be a, a situation of deep uh, difficulty for David, he immediately goes to somebody he knows is faithful. He goes to that person and he finds comfort in speaking to them about what's going on. So David goes to a friend. And Samuel serves to be that supportive friend. Ultimately, he and Samuel then leave Ramah where Samuel is. And they go to this prophetic community in, in, in Naoth. Or Naoth's also a word that has to do with tent. So maybe it's a a kind of a prophetic tent monastery kind of thing. We're not quite sure what, what's going on there. But either way, we know it's the company of the prophets. They go there, and Saul keeps sending guys there after he hears about it to, to, kill, to kill David. The irony of the whole thing is that as he sends these men to kill David, remember, Saul is the one who disobeys the word of God. That's what Saul is doing. God has, says you're not, God has said you're not king anymore. And Saul has said, uh, yes, I'm, I'm going to still be king. I'm going to disregard what you say, just like I've been disregarding what you say all the time. That's Saul's posture of heart. The ironic thing is, is that the men Saul sends to capture David and kill the one that God has said would be king, in this amazing turn, the men who would carry out Saul's really greatest act of defiance against the word of the Lord to date, are themselves caught up in speaking the word of the Lord which is just, just almost humorous when we think about the situation. It's, it's an astounding irony, uh, manifestly portraying the power of God and His Word. We are absolutely against the Word of God and what He says. And what are they doing? They're carried up confessing the truth of what God says. They can't get to David. The Word of God is, is powerful. It wins all the time. And, and if that's not enough, then we see what happens with Saul himself. And what happens with Saul... Apart from going through a whole, whole bunch of details here, what we need to see is that Saul actually repeats a journey. But this time, he's not going on a journey like we had back in chapter 9, which ended his, in his anointing and recognition by the people as Israel's king. Instead, he's going on a journey similar to chapter 9, but this time it's a journey that's going to prove that he has been divest, he's been removed from power. He has been shamed now as one who is rejected by God as king. 
And so just, just notice some parallels. If you look at, at, the, at the verses there in the end of the chapter, uh, back, back in chapter nine, uh, 9, Saul's on a journey, you remember, to, to search for, for donkeys in obedience to his father. Dad tells him to go on that search, find the donkeys that are lost. Chapter 9, he's obeying his dad. Chapter 19, Saul's on a journey to, uh, in search of David to disobey the Lord. So there's already a contrast in motives there. Chapter 9, at a well, Saul had to ask where Samuel was. Here in chapter 19, verse 22, at a well, um, Saul asks where Samuel and David are, which is weird because he already knows where they are, but, but that's, that, that detail is in there for us. And then just as things go on in the story, um, back in chapter 9, Saul meets that company of prophets and starts prophesying as God confirms him as king in Israel. Here in chapter 19, Saul begins to prophesy too. Same thing, company of prophets. But this time, instead of Saul being overcome by the Spirit of God uh, to, to confirm him as king, here Saul's overcome by the Spirit of God and he's actually pressed down in a symbolic removal from his royal position. So we read that the Spirit of God comes upon Saul again, but this time Saul removes his clothes and he's collapsed and, and lays naked. And it's not, not to say that he's necessarily completely naked, but we know from that episode with Jonathan that to, to take off royal garments is to say, I'm not king, or in Jonathan's case, I won't be king. In Saul's case, it is to say, I'm not king anymore. There's, there's this thing that's happening as he's overwhelmed by the Spirit of God. And again, as connected to Genesis, as we know, uh, Genesis 3 on the topic of nakedness and all through the Old Testament, that's language of shame on the other side of sin. So we have going on here under the direct action of the Spirit of God, not only is Saul speaking the Word of God, irony again, a word he's totally rejected, but there he is saying the Word of God, he's prophesying, but his royal status is very visibly and tangibly removed. And instead of being head and shoulders taller than, than all of the rest of Israel, remember that at his coronation as king, he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else here. He's collapsed, laying on the ground all day and all night. Again, in, in total shame. He's gone the exact opposite direction. And, and then we have the repeated refrain at the end. We heard it uh, earlier about Saul. Now it's, it's stated again, this time with a true sense of sarcasm, is Saul also among the prophets? Of course, the answer is no, Saul is not among the prophets. Saul is a defeated king. Saul's, Saul's merely overwhelmed by the word of God that he chooses to ignore, and now he's laid bare in his true position, not as king, uh, but, uh, but as one subject to the power of God, which will preserve the king whom the Lord has ultimately chosen. So, Saul's done, he's shamed, he's defamed, he's confessing the word of God. David is the one who's been kept safe. Well, which, which is very interesting because so much of the story so far leaves us thinking that David is the one who's ultimately going to be put to shame in this whole narrative. Right? There are a number of indicators that make us think things could end in shame for David. Things should end in shame for David. That's what we would expect. But just as an example, the words for hide or elude or escape are used of David's actions seven times in this chapter. David's in that humiliating place of running away. So David's on the run. And then also, it's notable that we're told when David defeated the Philistines, he, he literally struck them down in verse 8 and they fled. But in verse 10, using the same language, we're told that Saul tried to strike David and David fled. This is the one who's, who, who's, who struck, strikes down the Philistines and causes them to flee, rescues Israel. But he's the one who's almost struck and has to flee. It seems like David's going to be the one who's put to shame in all this. But of course, we remember Psalm 2 that we read in the beginning in our call to worship this morning. When leaders gather together against the Lord's anointed, what happens? 
Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord's anointed will not be overcome. Right? The Lord mocks those who would ultimately oppose him. And in a real outworking of Psalm 2, which we see taking place here, instead of David being put to shame, Saul is the one put to shame because you cannot oppose the Lord's anointed king and win. Ultimately, what happens? You still speak the word of God even from a place of defeat, which reminds us of, of things going on in the New Testament. We see even where the Apostle Paul starts to frame his understanding of what's true about Jesus when he writes that, that, uh, that hymn in the middle of Philippians. And what does he say there in the middle of Philippians? He says, well, on that final day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the lordship of King Jesus. That's what Paul says. Here, here's Saul's prophesying in his rejection of the word of the Lord, he's ultimately still saying the truth of the Lord. And that one day will be proved out in its fullest extent in the confessing of the truth of who King Jesus is, whether we reject him or whether we embrace him. Either way, on that final day, we will all say what's true about the Lord's word and the Lord's ultimate king. And that's pictured in, a, in just a small way here in Saul's own position. There he is down on the ground declaring what's true, divested of his own glory uh, while the glory of the one chosen by God is protected. And so it's an amazing picture that's here. We just rest, we worship in, in the reality that the Lord's King is always going to be, to, to be the one who prevails. And, and in saying that, I want to say just, just one more thing as we wrap up here regarding this passage. We have to notice that, that in David's life, it is a really long road to the throne. Um, it's a road of pain, it's a road of sorrow, it's a, a road where he's almost killed multiple times. And, and the same we know is true for Jesus. For, for Jesus, the road to the glories of the resurrection and ascension was a road marked by pain and rejection. It was a road marked by authorities who wanted to kill him and abandonment by friends and, and ultimately a road that led through death itself on a cross. It's a hard road to glory for the king. And for us as followers of the greater king, as followers of King Jesus, the road to our own place of ultimate rest, we need to recognize uh, there can be this tension involved in our life too. As the king goes, so we follow him. Right? And we can actually take heart from a passage like this because not only do we see, and we'll see this multiple times, uh, there's pictures that show us that Jesus will go into this place of absolute death in order to be our Savior, to pay the price for our sins, all those things reflected in the cross. He will suffer all that way. We too are called to take up our cross, take up that instrument of resurrection of, or uh, crucifixion of self and live in this costly way following our Lord. And that can, be a, that can be a process that is so difficult and painful because we know following in the footsteps of the better king can be costly in those ways. For all the opposition, for all the animosity, the trials and the uncertainty, we know those things. But from a passage like this, we can rest in the fact that the Lord is the one who keeps his own. He keeps his own. In fact, in fact, there's something really interesting to think about with this passage. What, what we do notice is that for all the talking that's going on, except that we have a record of David speaking with Samuel at some point, we actually have no record of any words from David in this whole section. I mean, there's David, obviously the character under the greatest weight in the totality of this situation, and, he, and we have no recorded word for him. Except that we actually have a poem that he wrote during this time for us in Psalm 59. In Psalm 59, we're, we're given a poem. The inspired text tells us this is a poem he wrote in his house while men were outside waiting to kill him. In this exact situation, David writes a poem. And in reading that psalm, there's one thing in particular that can stand out, especially as we think about it against this text. Because in our passage, 
when, when Michael is concerned for David's safety, she tells him literally in verse 11, if you don't flee tonight, you'll be dead in the morning, which, which is good advice. David needed to leave. It was true. He needed to leave. But listen how, to how David spoke about the morning in his poetic account of this event. Just listen to David's own posture of heart. He doesn't say, I'll be dead in the morning. He says this in Psalm 59, in the thick of his trial, no doubt in his bedroom writing this psalm while men are outside waiting to kill him and he knows it. In the thick of it, Psalm 59 verse 16, he says, I will sing of your strength and will joyfully proclaim your faithful love in the morning. What a difference of, of, of posture of heart. David was, was pressed in his faithfulness to God. Jesus was pressed in his own faithfulness. We can be pressed in our faithfulness, but the final word for us, because we belong to the king who's victorious, even as we sit in the midst of sorrow and trials and all of these things that can come, the ultimate word for us is not to look forward to the morning with dread, but we can look forward to the morning with delight and joy and rest, knowing that God's faithful love will be expressed to us without a doubt. So commenting on that, Dale Ralph Davis, he puts it this way. Sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successful in your trial, but, or not successful getting past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of your trial. And that's very much where David is living, and that's very much where he's expressing this own, his own posture of faith. And that obviously is what we see worked out perfectly in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. There he is along the way, and what is Jesus doing? Constantly, readily, every time, always doing the will of God, persevering, knowing that he's ultimately going to be vindicated in the morning. We get into the New Testament, what is the morning? The morning is a wonderful picture of resurrection hope. The morning is when Jesus rises again. The morning is when the, the disciples run and see the empty tomb. The morning is the place of hope. And David, in the midst of probably his darkest day to date, in the midst of that, He's reflecting on the fact that in the morning I'm going to know God's faithfulness. I will not know death. And so as we come to a, to a passage like this, we just see there's, there's extraordinary hope in the midst of the two ways that are lined out very plainly for us. There's, there's the way with the king, there's the way against the king. But by the time we're at the end of this, how could we not be with the king? Because with the king, not only is there life and life uh, abundant as we're rescued from those things that would ultimately uh, be a source of bondage and eternal death, not only is there rescue, but there is this glorious hope because the king wins. We're with the one who has victory. And in that, we're brought to a, we're brought to a place of rest ourselves as we consider these truths. So we're thankful to God for his word and the, and the truth that it gives to us. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we do ask that we would be encouraged by your truth this morning. We need to be upheld by it. We feel the weight of all kinds of various circumstances, and we do know, we do know that you are the God who is faithful morning by morning. You're the God who never rests. You're the God who never sleeps. You're the God who is constantly working for our good. And, and while uh, these trials can be present, even trials like we see David experiencing here, we know that with the King, with the Lord Jesus, there is always victory. There's always hope. Uh, not least of all, as we look forward to the reality of the resurrection. And so, Father, we pray we would, we would rest in these things today, be renewed by them, and be built up in the truth of what your word reveals to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.